Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a conversation show about the fast-moving world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Today on the show, we're going to be looking ahead to the COP27 climate talks that begin on Sunday and the concept of climate justice. And we're going to be talking about how we can change the way we power the world's ships. Joining me on the show today, I'm very pleased to welcome back two old friends. We have Amy Dufour, who's a co-founder and general partner at Azola Ventures, which is a venture capital firm investing in early stage technology companies that have the potential for large scale climate impact. Hello, Amy. Welcome back. Hi, Ed. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for joining us. And we also have Shanu Matthew, who is Vice President for Sustainable Investing and Net Zero Research at Lazard Asset Management. Hello, Shanu. Hey, Ed. Thanks for having me on again. Excited to be back. Yeah, pleasure to have you here. So before we get started, perhaps just a quick catch up with you both, because it's been a little while since we saw you. What have you been doing since we last had you on the Energy Gang? Amy, what have you been up to? Wow, it's been about six months, so I'm trying to rack my brain, but we've been really busy. (laughs) Yeah, if you wouldn't mind just summarizing the entire six months in about 30 seconds or so, that'd be great. Oh, yeah. I I had a lot of fun over the summer. I did a lot of travel. No, Um, but... (laughs) It's been a great past couple of months. We've been really busy making investments at Azola Ventures. You know, our fund was purpose-built to catalyze overlooked and neglected climate solutions. And given a lot of the capital that's been flowing into the climate tech space, it's been a really uh, interesting journey uh, looking for the diamonds in the rough, um, those where others aren't looking. So it's been a lot of fun. Fantastic. Shanu, what about you? Definitely. I think you know, since the last time I've been on, I think the obvious big news was, you know, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. So, um, you know, we've been trying to get up to speed on how that legislation and the incentives in it are, are impacting companies and their plans to invest capital. You know, you're starting to see announcements of new plants, new new deals that are happening as a result of increased economics via the IRA. So I've been trying to wrap my head around that and figure out, you know, how to evaluate the different opportunities associated with that. So it's been an exciting time. Yeah, it certainly is. As you say, it's been really interesting something we've covered quite a bit on this show in uh, recent weeks, thinking about all the different ways that the Inflation Reduction Act is kind of shaking up the world of clean energy uh, throughout the US. And, yeah, fascinating time, as you say. So the thing I want to get on to talking about this show today is the big news of right now, which is COP27, latest international climate conference, which is kicking off in Sharm el-Sheikh, about now, this uh, podcast usually gets posted on a Friday and the conference itself starts on the Sunday. It's not going to be, I think it's pretty generally agreed, as big of a deal as COP26 was in terms of new pledges, announcements and so on being made. It's something where I think it's fair to say that if the world just avoids backsliding on a lot of the commitments that have already been made, that'll be counted a success for the meeting. But there are certainly some really interesting and important issues going to be discussed. And the thing that I was particularly keen to talk about on this show was the question of climate justice, which seems to be very much kind of rising up the agenda and is something which is increasingly a focus of these international climate talks. So I think probably to help the discussion, it'd be great to sort of define terms a little bit to explain what people mean by climate justice, how the term is used, and what some of the implications of it are. And Amy, perhaps to start with you, I know there's something you're very interested in as an issue. As I say, just to begin really at the beginning in terms of the meaning of the words, what does climate justice mean? Yeah, and it can mean different things to different people. But essentially, when you think about hurricanes, floods, or droughts um, that are striking, 
all too often, the people that are hit the hardest are low-income communities and marginalized communities who bear little responsibility for climate change. So this is a key central argument for climate justice, that we need to reshape climate action from a technical effort to cut greenhouse gas emissions into a framework that also includes human rights and social inequality. So zooming out and thinking a bit more about COP27, I mean, industrialized nations and corporations have amassed a ton of wealth by burning fossil fuels. So there are a number of people within the climate justice space that assert that a just outcome would also involve those industrialized nations and corporations redistributing more of this wealth towards the marginalized communities that are disproportionately dealing with those negative impacts. And when we talk about marginalized communities, I think it's also important to define some of those vulnerable groups because there are lots of um, different identity groups that are often included. It could be indigenous people, people of color, women, disabled people, and also youth as well, because there's a whole discussion around the intergenerational injustice of older generations that are benefiting from fossil fuels, but it's young people that have to deal with the consequences. Right. And so thinking about some of the ways that this bites then in kind of practical decision making, you talked about international transfers. This has been a big theme of recent COP talks, this $100 billion a year figure, which um, since Paris in 2015, richer countries are meant to provide $100 billion a year of climate financing to poorer countries to help both with mitigation, cutting emissions, and also with adaptation, them uh, helping these countries cope with the impacts of climate change. And basically, the rich countries have never lived up to those promises. I think the amount that flowed in 2020 was something like $83 billion. So kind of getting towards that, but not actually there at $100 billion. And don't actually know what the number for 2021 is. Number has not been published, which suggests it's not going to be good news on that front, because if it was good news, people would be out there talking about it. So clearly, that is a big problem in terms of getting that capital to flow. What do you think are the answers on that? I mean, is there a way that the world can kind of unlock that money to get the capital to flow to where it's needed to try and as you say, look at things through that sort of climate justice framework and actually help the poorer countries that have not benefited from the use of fossil fuels in the past, help them to cope with the impacts of the fact that those fossil fuels were used in the past. Given that it's apparently very hard to make progress on that, how do you make progress? Well, I think it's first acknowledging that there is an injustice that's there uh, because there's even discussion in terms of who responsibility it is to end up paying for the impacts that others are facing, especially when some developed nations are, you know, increasingly combating other issues on their own. When you think about the European energy crisis and how it's forced countries, in my opinion, sometimes to make a, a binary decision on fossil fuels versus clean energy instead of parallelizing um, the two. Um, given kind of the short-term, um, hopefully short-term constraints. So there, there are lots of different ways that, you know, people have been focusing on getting capital to flow. Climate finance has, you know, been one of the longstanding goals um, really at COP. And the devil really is in the details in terms of what mechanisms, you know, make the most sense. Loss and damage 
appears to be a way that's been gaining traction, particularly amongst uh, developing countries. When you think about Pakistan, which has been devastated by floods over the summer, I mean, there's a real urgency and you know necessity to to move that mechanism forward. And and Shanu, I don't want to steal your thunder because I know you thought um, a lot about this. So I'm curious what you've seen, how likely you think this will gain traction um, at COP and any broader considerations um, that those in the climate finance community, including the two of us, should be thinking about. Yeah, thanks, Amy. I think it's the million dollar question heading into COP. Uh, I guess I'll just spend a minute here describing what loss and damage is and the history of it, just for folks that may not be as familiar. Um, but it's largely very, very you know, connected to this topic of climate justice and the idea that you know a lot of the communities that are already facing the damages and, and direct impacts of a warming climate and climate change are typically vulnerable nations and developing countries that have contributed the least to the problem. And so this concept of loss and damage is whereby a lot of the you know coalition of smaller developing small island states are coming together to say developed countries should create a compensatory financing mechanism that helps assist and react to these damages. And then so, you know, you might ask that question to connect to Ed's earlier point, what is this is how is this different from the hundred billion towards mitigation and adaptation? Um, and I think one of the heads of the small island state said it best where, you know, in the current system, the UN has money if you want to put up solar panels, it has money if you want to retrofit your home, but it doesn't have money when people are losing their homes. Um, and I think that that is a clear gap that's not accounted for under the current frameworks. That being said, to answer your second question on you know the probability and the likelihood this happens, um, I think is a lot more opaque. Uh, I think when you're from a developed country point of view, I think there's a whole host of issues and, and concerns or hesitations around admitting you know fault or blame for climate change, if you will, given it's you know truly a global issue. And I guess like you can approach it from so many different ways of who should be responsible for paying. Is it the folks that are contributing the most today? Is it the folks that contributed most cumulatively? Is it the companies versus the countries? Um, so it introduces a whole host of issues. And the other main topic that they raise in concerns is typically around governance. Um, and they often point to nations in developing countries that have a wealth of you know mineral resources, oil resources, and have not been able to adequately you know monetize that due to poor governance or corruption locally you know there's big questions around how the money would actually be dispersed if it is actually created into a mechanism so i have seen some countries push towards different types of solutions such like insurance schemes where you know they might be providing some support capital to help stand up private infrastructure to to help with some of these uh, recovery or humanitarian aid efforts but i think that's going to be a main talking point and negotiation point here in the comp because if you're a small developing state, I mean, this is a matter of existential risk. Um, and, and, you know, it impacts you in the form of property and form of the workforce and, and opportunities available to them and destruction of industries locally. So there needs to be some type of process in place here to address that. Um, the matter and the manifestation of it, I think, is still up in the air. I love that, Chanu, especially because I feel like what you're pointing to really um, touches on representation. What voices are really dominating the agenda or the solutions? I mean, we should be as we consider different mechanisms for climate finance, we need to be including those voices that are disproportionately impacted um, from climate change, whether it's small island nations, others that are from marginalized communities. And so when you also think about COP27, we really need to have a healthy discussion and inclusion of people from small island states, climate activists, of women, of youth, in making sure that those voices are heard and respected equally from developing and developed countries. So I think that was a really kind of important point uh, to end on. So I have a question for both of you, which is, 
how much does this discussion, these ideas about um, climate justice, the importance of loss and damage, how much do they affect what you do in your daily working lives? You're both in the investment business in different ways, in climate impact investing, in sustainable investment. Is it the case that you're starting to think about climate justice kind of in every decision you're making now on deploying capital? Or is there something which is still sort of looming out there somewhere as a kind of a theoretical concept and something which governments absolutely should be addressing, but doesn't really impinge on you? I'm interested in both of your thoughts on that. But, but Amy, what do you think? How, how much is it affecting your daily life? It's definitely affecting our daily life. There's been a much greater awareness of what climate justice has been over the past couple of years. There's actually this really interesting analysis um, that was done by um, Factiva, which looked at mentions of climate justice in the global media, which more than doubled um, from 2018. I'm sure the protests against racial injustice and the pandemic also played a role because people had more time to sit and think. And it was more visceral the ways in which a lot of industries and environments were just not equitable. And so at Azola, you know, we're early stage investors. So climate justice and how we think about it shows up in a couple of different ways. You know, the first is around investment decision making and pipeline. So we think about diversity, equity, inclusion and justice, not simply because it's a, you know, quote unquote, nice thing to do, but frankly, because key customers and partners for our portfolio companies are asking for this. We were taking a look at um, the carbon market space about a year ago and we're chatting with the head of climate at Stripe. Stripe has been one of the biggest companies that's announced corporate pledges and has pioneered a structure to de-risk and catalyze the carbon removal market. They essentially said on their applications um, that companies and carbon removal projects needed to outline their climate justice and DEIJ plans explicitly, particularly when you think about community engagement and deployment. And if they didn't have thoughtful responses, you know, their application was unlikely to move forward. So that's you know, on one side where megatech companies are, you know, pushing that discussion. I think on an internal end, when we think about investment pipeline, you know, we've actually instituted a dedicated diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice diligence session with companies in advanced stages of our pipeline. So we really want to understand what their willingness is to engage with climate justice and DEI, both at a company level um, and a deployment level. We know that early stage founders aren't going to have all the answers, but we want to highlight it's something that we take seriously, that the market is beginning to take seriously, and that will help them address it as long as they're willing and see value in a more intersectional approach to addressing the climate crisis. It might be helpful if I give you an example of a company in our portfolio I think is doing this um, pretty well. So... Our predecessor fund to Azola Ventures is called Prime Impact Fund, and we invested in a company called Vesta, which is focusing on coastal carbon capture. So coastal communities, habitats, infrastructure are all being threatened by climate change and sea level rise. We've seen all the kind of news and alarming reports. And so Vesta is developing technology that adds a carbon-removing sand It's made out of a natural mineral um, called olivine to eroding coastal systems. So their tech reduces ocean acidity and can remove and sequester carbon dioxide permanently. So imagine it in the rocks along the sea lines. 
And they believe that there's a path to full-scale carbon removal at sub $50 a ton. And so climate justice is super important here because when we talked before about the worst impacts of climate change being felt by marginalized communities around the world, that includes certain coastal communities. And Vesta's first, one of their pilots is in the Dominican Republic, where they've actually developed a justice-based approach to partner with communities and governments through active involvement and participation by a lot of different stakeholders. So the framework is called participatory governance, and the objective is for all opinions, concerns, or objections to be heard and addressed. The work has been guided by local female leadership team and local community experts alongside a senior regional manager. So when I talk also about women um, playing a role disproportionately in some of the negative impacts of the climate crisis. And Vesta, I think, has been really thoughtful about seeing these collaborative efforts to create or co-create, actually, I should say, a model for implementing these different projects in local communities where the benefits of those projects can be distributed to the stakeholders where they live. And they've actually even published these efforts in the Social Science Research Network Journal. And so I'm not saying that every company is like Vesta, but I I think it demonstrates that there is a thoughtful way to start thinking about climate justice and actively integrate it into your climate technology solution, even at the earliest stages. Yeah, absolutely. I think Amy articulated that so well in the sense of companies focusing on where they can have an impact integrated. And so on our side of the world, I guess when we're dealing with public equities, it's less clear when you have some of these more diversified grand, I guess, you know, international businesses. But what we have seen is companies starting to integrate part of their climate strategy or decarbonization strategy uh, with the concept of climate justice. And I'll give two examples, which are in the similar vein of what Amy described here is, um, you know, there was a company that we engaged with that is a large consultancy. And so they're likely to have a steady state emissions profile from long haul travel that will be hard to abate over, you know, the near to medium term. And so, you know, offsets will have to be a part of their strategy. And what they've done is they created an internal team here to prioritize where they deploy capital to and quality control the types of offsets they get. But typically you procure through a broker, they kind of handle all that. This team built an internal team. And what they did was they went to the actual local communities that they work with to ensure that, you know, they're held to the higher standard that, you know, the benefits of the compensation mechanism that the company's paying for are accruing to the stakeholders that live there. Um, and they're treated under, you know, fair and and appropriate labor rights, uh, as well as, you know, not violating any types of principles around free and fair labor. And so it was an element of trying to incorporate climate justice and how do they execute their climate strategy. Another topic, which I thought was a little bit more interesting, I've yet to see it out in the wild yet, but when corporations procure renewable energy, they typically sign corporate PP&As. And the idea is that you want to have those clean energy molecules as close to where you're actually drawing from the grid and procuring more dirty molecules the idea is over time, you want to actually you know, displace the types of molecules that you're getting and moving towards clean. The argument that was made by a global head of sustainability of a you know, major tech company that we were talking to was that would the dollars be better served if they actually took those dollars and you know, tried to set up infrastructure or framework in developing countries or more vulnerable nations around their renewable power? Because if you think about the US with the incentives in place and the fact that it's more developed, the, the renewable construction will probably go as as you'd imagine, and already has enough momentum, whereas they can actually make a super meaningful impact in some of these more developing countries without the concrete framework or demand pull. And so I thought that was a pretty interesting idea. And then I guess just to close off in terms of how we look at it internally, I think 
I mean, I think if anyone's telling you they have it completely figured out, I would say that they're exaggerating greatly. Um, I think it is very much still theoretical in, in a lot of ways, but I think what folks are moving towards, um, and I'd point towards some of the, the frameworks that highlight this, like such as the Climate Action 100 Plus is, you know, one, can companies acknowledge they have a policy in place to acknowledge that, you know, there is a concept of a just transition, and then it becomes a function of, do you know, what policies do you have in place to retain, retrain, and redeploy employees that are affected by, you know, different climate change type impacts? Um, you know, how do you partner with local communities, unions, and workers? Do you support low carbon initiatives in developing and vulnerable countries? And so things along those lens, but it very much I still think is in a learning phase. And you're kind of pointing to best in class examples, such as the ones that Amy and I spoke to today of companies trying to integrate this into their day to day. Um, but it, it'll definitely be a journey. No, I was just going to to add, it's definitely a journey. Nobody has it figured out yet. And I wanted to add one example, particularly from the early stage venture capital industry of trying to integrate this in more from a legal sense. So there have been venture funds um, that have put in diversity, equity, and inclusion um, and broader justice riders into their term sheets. And so in those instances, they've asked investees to make best efforts to diversify their team, diversify um, their suppliers, Shana, which I feel like is, is one of the things that you're speaking to, diversify their advisors, also to diversify other members of the investing syndicate. Um, and so while it's not as much of a kind of an easier to see direct link um, between that and climate justice, it's really about bringing other voices uh, to the table and creating a mechanism whereby early stage startups feel compelled to actually act on some of the, you know, theoretical ideas that have become more mainstream around climate justice. Okay, so that's really fascinating and very convincing the way you've put it. I have a concern or maybe a potential concern possibly which I'd be which I'd be interested to get your thoughts on. The motto we have on the show, often used, I think, from way back into the past, is deploy, 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 in the sense of there is the technology there to radically increase supplies of low-carbon energy. The most important thing to do is to get it out there, to get the investments made, to get the infrastructure in the ground. Question, when you impose requirements on diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and other requirements on the companies, the funds, whoever it might be that you're working with to get these investments made, does this put another hurdle up that is going to slow deployment? I've become possibly notorious among uh, some people who uh, come on this podcast for being pretty dismissive of some concerns about local environmental impact, for instance, local environmental impact being the kind of polite way to put it, nimbyism, I guess, being the rude way to put it. But, you know, the obstacles that people put in the place of deployment of low carbon energy, I think are often put there unnecessarily and those barriers are too high and prevents the deployment of infrastructure that we really badly need. So my question is, is there a danger that that whole DEIJ framework becomes just another barrier which slows deployment? Ooh. Ed, that is a loaded question. Um, <laughs> you're, you're coming I, in hot, Ed. No, it's a genuine. No, to be honest, it's a genuine question. No, no, I'm I'm not prejudging the answer at all. But I am interested in your thoughts. No, look, I I don't think it's a binary outcome. I think it's, I think the way that it's been been presented in the past is that you can only do one versus the other. And I think 
there may be some situations whereby things need to be navigated carefully, but frankly, I think it's more about being thoughtful about the ways in which you engage and center communities in tech deployments, which ultimately I think is going to create a longer term, more sustainable, more impactful and more profitable solution. I think the tension that you're pointing to, frankly, is how the venture capital industry and the financial services industry at large can be more proactive and intentional about supporting companies and invest and investment managers to integrate climate justice into their work in a way that does not kind of slow things down or oh, slow things down unnecessarily because sometimes you know going fast and breaking things doesn't isn't always the 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 right approach but to not slow things down unnecessarily can keep a a certain amount of a momentum and not be a large barrier. And I think that that can be done. I don't think that anyone, I think there are very few organizations that have taken the time to actually sit there and, and think through what that could look like. And I don't have the answers because we're still very much in the early phases of our own journey. Uh, but that's the type of ecosystem level of change and support, I think that frankly would be incredibly helpful for investment managers who are supporting these companies, as well as other stakeholders within the broader climate ecosystem. I, I would just add on to that. Yeah, I, I do agree with Amy in, in a sense of a little bit that it's phrased or opposed typically as a false choice where I think we, we describe it as a journey. I think a lot of folks are trying to figure out how to, to best you know systematize this and, and incorporate it into their operational practices, but it's not necessarily at the expense of, of deployment. It's you know how can you integrate and incorporate both while you're deploying. And then I think that that's a matter of future proofing your business, right? So like whether it happens now or later, I mean, you can point to different things like such as like the, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act in the solar supply chain, right? I mean, if you had folks that were thinking about these issues beforehand, trying to make sure that they're not infringing upon different labor rights and, you know, making sure that you know, the outcomes of these products being deployed are, are equitable and just, you know, you're not running into issue later when you stand up a global supply chain and now your, your panels are, are you know, detained, um, as a result of like laws changing. So I think it's a matter of just being forward thinking and necessarily not necessarily at the cost of deployment, but just future proofing your future deployment um, to ensure that's done in a way that's repeatable at scale and doesn't violate any principles of what you would consider a just transition. Yeah, I totally see your point on that, but that does make a lot of sense. And I, I do uh, internally see your arguments there. One other thing, Shannon, I just wanted to raise with you because we were chatting about this um, earlier before we were recording was, I guess, this idea that Perhaps we've been talking about climate justice. Is there a sense in which you can talk about energy justice as well? When you compare energy use around the world, we in the developed world use vastly more energy than people in developing countries. It's often implicit in the climate debate that people in developing countries should not be able to increase their energy consumption to the levels and in the forms in particular to be consuming as many fossil fuels as we are in the rich world, which is clearly then another very important aspect of the whole global equity debate and global, the global justice debate, and is something that very sharply felt and particularly sharply felt, I think, at the moment, at a time when fossil fuel prices have risen very high, when prices of oil, gas and coal have absolutely gone through the roof because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all the disruption that's followed that. And so you're finding a lot of poorer countries being priced out of the market. And you talk about Pakistan. Pakistan has been hit by these devastating floods this year, has this terrible problem, which absolutely is uh, an issue that's linked to climate change and is going to get worse 
uh, as climate change continues. Pakistan's also got a huge energy problem, which is being priced out of international gas markets and having committed very heavily to gas as an important energy source for that country. They're now finding that basically European countries are buying up all the uh, the gas that's on the market internationally. And Pakistan really can't afford it, given the state of its economy at the moment. So there are these strong competing pressures, which get us to some very, very fundamental issues about global justice, the way that the world's resources are allocated, who gets to use them and who doesn't. Is that something we can address in this framework as well? Or do we just have to kind of throw our hands up and say, this is too difficult, this is not something that we can solve? Because fundamentally, to solve it, you'd need to completely change the way the world economy works. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a fantastic point, and I think it's I think to me actually is one of the more interesting components. Of, we'll see how how this is you know addressed at COP uh, and beyond. But I mean, I, you hit it on the head in the sense of you know energy access or security is is one of the most fundamental rights I guess most folks have in developed in developing countries. I mean, I would encourage folks to go to our world and data and plot energy use per person. Look at you know the United States and higher income countries compared to low, middle, and low income countries, and then also to follow up, look at access to electricity versus GDP per capita. And it's very clear that if you increase electricity access or energy access, you know, the wealth of the average person is going to go up. And so it really brings up an interesting parallel to, to the moment in time right now with the last 18 to 24 months, as you say, you know, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, it put energy markets into, dis- I guess, disastrous conditions across the world. And that's resulted in substantial inflation in Europe, up to 40 to 60% of inflation was caused by energy. In the US, you saw year over year, you know, 18 to 20%. So it begs this huge question of, like you say, energy security, because disproportionately the lower income households spend more of their income on energy. They're hit by a double whammy. And then even if you look at some of the relief efforts in Europe, um, they're based on how much energy you can save or, or, or energy efficiency, which a lot of these lower households are already using a less amount and don't waste as much, but they actually don't get the benefit of those policies. So I think when I think about the implications from all this, it is what does that mean for go forward national policies around energy? And my personal belief is you're going to see countries take in all the above the approach. So basically saying, at the end of the day, we're prioritizing energy security for our constituents. And that means that we're going to take in all the above, including fossil and renewables. And so I think this is interesting because at this point in time, we're also pushing countries to set more aggressive NDCs um, and try to make those binding. But we're also developing new fossil assets, which are not consistent with some of these pathways. And I don't think that that dynamic is going to change because at the end of the day, we've We've realized that a lot of countries are going to prioritize energy security and energy independence over or at the cost of their longer term ambitions. I will say you are starting to see a, a divergence of approach. Um, we, we, you, know, you know, certain regions like the US passed the IRA, EU's Fit for 55 package, uh, Japan, China, South Korea have different various initiatives around renewable energy. Um, but, you know, 80% of the world still runs on fossil fuels today. And so that's going to be a, a long journey to displace that. And so I think. On this basis of energy security, you'll probably have a longer life or longer run rate of fossil fuels than we previously expected or that the climate models anticipated. And that's something that we're going to have to grapple with here because I think the core question you said is who gets to allocate, who gets to use what, or who gets to develop what, especially when you look at developing countries like Africa, where there's, I think there's the last number of estimates, I saw was like 600 million people don't have access to electricity. And if you see the developing countries may look at developed countries and say, if you're doing an all the above approach, who are you to tell us that we have to finance only clean energy and you're not going to give us the money to do so? So I think it is a really core um, issue to the, that's central to the debate and then we'll have you know impacts on our overall climate trajectory. And Amy, to pick up on what you were saying earlier, as you say, given where we are with 
the sky-high fossil fuel prices we've got right now, what you've seen from European governments in particular this year is they're spending a lot of money to mitigate the impact of those high prices on their own consumers, very likely then leaving them with less capacity, less willingness to think about climate justice on a global scale, what they can be doing to help out lower-income countries who, have just been saying, have been suffering also from those same sky-high fossil fuel prices. So it does seem like, doesn't it, the conditions are particularly difficult at the moment when you have essentially these kind of very tight fossil fuel markets and demand exceeding supply. I think that is true, but I think part of it is a question of inclusion, representation, and frankly, will. I mean, we're talking about kind of the NDCs since last year, like when we start to think about all these these different dynamics, which I wouldn't say that the energy crisis is not something that's made people make really hard decisions, especially in Europe. At last COP, I mean, there were only, I think, like 20 or, or 24 new or updated plans that were submitted. I mean, that's pretty disappointing. I mean, so there's a lot of talk and there's there's not a lot of action. And I I know we've been nursing this global pandemic and these energy crises, but we we really have to paralyze the pieces because the urgency isn't going away. It's just increasing. And while we've made some progress over the past couple of years, I think largely driven by the pandemic and renewable prices coming down considerably, it's still not fast enough where we need to be to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change. And while the people and the nations that are going to be disproportionately impacted are the ones that we've been talking about. More developed nations are also going to face this. And so I think it's it's this idea of short term versus long term. And again, really thinking about what are the ways in which that we can parallelize different processes, because you'll go one way and then in five, 10 years or 20 years, I mean, shit's going to hit the fan. <laughs> Nobody's going to have um, any They'll be like, well, this is, you know, this is what it is. We had to make hard choices. And so I think we really need to think more about that broader parallelization and frankly, not thinking about everything as a binary outcome. I think that's a very dangerous way of thinking. And I think it's the dominant way of thinking. And I do understand that there are trade-offs, but I think we're going into this new environment and we really need to reimagine and be creative about ways that we can solve the climate crisis because- what we've been doing has has been getting us some progress, but it's it's not fast enough. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point, and I think that's a great uh, thought to end this discussion of COP twenty seven on, which is the the point, as you're saying, Amy, about the trajectory that we're on at the moment. And there was this very um, strong report from the UN out recently, essentially projecting the course that the world is on. As you say, if you look at the nationally determined contributions (NDCs), the commitments that countries are making to curb emissions. They don't really get us anywhere near where we'd need to be to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C, which is the stretch goal, if you like, of the Paris Agreement. That was what the countries of the world uh, committed to make efforts to try and do uh, back in Paris. In fact, it's not 1.5 degrees centigrade. It's more like 2.5 degrees centigrade of warming by the end of the century. That's the course we're on, really. As you say, actually... On the glass half full principle, that's a lot better than it was, right? If you projected that same trajectory maybe 20 years ago, 
We demand on course for four or four and a half degrees centigrade of warming by the end of the century, in particular, because there'd be an absolute ton more coal used. And we do definitely seem to be shifting at least uh, coal demand onto a plateau, perhaps if it's not falling as quickly as it needs to, but at least we're not going to get that huge, massive growth coal right through to the second half of the century, which one time looked likely. So things are looking better than they were, but they're still not looking great. So we've been talking in general terms then about the, the promise and also uh, challenges of decarbonisation. I wanted to come on to talking about one very specific example, because it's a really important one and there's quite a lot going on here. You may have heard our sister podcast, The Interchange Recharged, um, discuss this a couple of weeks back, had a very interesting interview with the shipping company Maersk, talking about their use of methanol to decarbonise shipping fuel. In any world that's going to have any chance at all of achieving those Paris Agreement goals for limiting global warming, or of even getting close to them, it's clear that we're going to have to use a lot less oil than we're using today. And in some areas, we can see how oil can be replaced. You can buy an EV. EVs are on the market today. They're actually pretty good. They do a job. They're going to grow very fast. It's clear that the demand for gasoline for cars is going to have a big chunk taken out of it by EVs. But in lots of other areas, it's actually really hard to find alternatives to oil. I think for aviation, for heavy trucks, it's kind of tricky. Possibly batteries are going to work, possibly hydrogen fuel cells, but we can't quite see uh, a solution for long-distance heavy trucks. And shipping is another one. Obviously, for long-distance shipping, batteries aren't going to work. And marine fuel is a big chunk of oil demand today. It's about 6% of oil demand today, and it's on a rising trend. So, Shannon and Amy, I'm, I'm interested in both of your thoughts about that specific challenge of decarbonising shipping and what you think is the, the right way to go. And I, I mean, Amy, start with you, maybe you've been thinking about this a bit. What do you think? And what do you think looks promising? Yeah, this is an area where really interested in diving deeper, first and foremost, because shipping is responsible for around 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, we actually hired a shipping investment fellow to solely focus on this, who sits on the board of a European shipping company. So this is very timely. I think first, it's, it's important to contextualize where a lot of the emissions from maritime shipping are coming from. Um, because while there are lots of different parts of the shipping value chain, which could be sourcing the raw materials for key components like steel or the propeller to shipbuilding, to ship operations, to you know a ship's end of life. The vast majority of emissions are from operations from the vessel itself, and it's due to fuel consumption. So that's why when we think about decarbonizing shipping, that's the place where we tend to focus our efforts. In the long term, you know there are different alternative fuel approaches, and that's generally where the industry has been leaning. So when I say alternative fuels, you know, you mentioned ammonia and methanol, you know, biofuels from biomass, hydrogen as well, all, you know, different areas that people are looking into. But based on the conversations we've had with industry, there are actually, you know, other medium or shorter term solutions. And the shorter term solutions people have been looking at, route optimization and speed reduction solutions. And in the medium term, people have been looking at carbon capture um, for ships. But long term, everybody's really focusing on alternative fuels. And they really can't happen on their own because 
There are going to be investments that need to be made in infrastructure that can support both the production and scalability. I think some of the greatest challenges that we've we've spoken to to people about when we think about adopting alternative fuels, shipping companies are you know, hesitant to adopt unproven technologies, although there are some leaders out there like Maersk. A lot of the questions there around safety, reliability, safety ends up being a really big concern. We hear that over and over again, um, as well as energy density issues. Just some fuels aren't as dense, which means they're going to take up more space on a ship or the cost advantages of newer technologies. But the good news is we actually have regulation on our side. I mean, in 2018, the International Maritime Organization announced their aim to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions in the industry by 40% by 2030 and 70% by 2050. So this has been super helpful in pushing a bunch of different actors in the value chain towards decarbonization. I think there's one last thing I'll, I'll note before, Shano, I'd love to get your thoughts because I know you've been thinking about different technologies, is when you think about alternative fuels, just because it's an alternative fuel doesn't mean it's inherently green. You know, the processes could, to make that fuel could involve fossil fuels or they could emit other greenhouse gases. So you have to be really careful that they're relying on renewable energy or that the full life cycle analysis is taken into account. So we're not falsely stating that something is, you know, clean energy when in fact it's not. And then there are also a bunch of unintended consequences of fuel leakage, which we need to be really thoughtful about. There could be ammonia leakage or methanol leakage all of which could have significant environmental damage. And so leakage control, safety, all of those key pieces have come up a lot as being very critical when you're even evaluating the different trade-offs across different alternative fuels. Yeah, definitely. I, I think you did a really good job wrapping up some of the big topics there. I mean, and some of the things I'm thinking about too is I guess what we've seen a lot of folks or operators focus on in the, in the near term, exactly to your point, because of the concern around scale and how to handle and the appropriate infrastructure on the fuel side is, is a lot of these big buckets of operational and technical efficiency. And so that's, as you said, you know, some of that technical efficiency might be the actual like vessel or fleet design, um, how systems interact with each other on the ship. Um, and then on the operational efficiency side, it's route optimization, making sure you're not idling, things like that. And so we've seen a lot of folks try to maximize the amount of efficiency they get because it reduces fuel usage per, you know, mile traveled or, or of a unit of measure you want to use. Um, but the issue is you're, you're starting to hit asymptotic limits on that because you run into the issue of you can make these efficiency changes, but a lot of times vessels, whether it's aviation or shipping or most long-haul transport, these are long-lived assets. So you run into the issue of ships you put out now might be out there for the next 25, 50 years. So ultimately it does boil back down to this fuel program and, and how the different pathways are developed. Um, I, I don't have a strong view on on one pathway or the other, uh, I would point folks to the folks at EDF Plus did a, a, a report on decarbonization of shipping today, actually, and they kind of break down some few different pathways. But um, I think like the things that you called out are, are really important in terms of like how much additional infrastructure is needed. Um, what are the different leakage properties? So for example, like ammonia is great because when you combust it, there's no CO2 because it's not in the fuel, but it's a highly toxic gas. So, you know, if there's like leakage or something like you could have some serious operational issues. Methane has carbon in the molecule, so you need to have some type of capture associated with it. Hydrogen is liquid form, needs to be cooled at a super low uh, temperature. So there's all these like various issues associated with the different technologies. It does appear from my lens that the industry is kind of coalescing around ammonia and methanol because those both have broader uses today in like chemical and agricultural industries. So there is 
subject matter and operational expertise and how to handle those fuels at scale. Um, just not necessarily in shipping just yet. But ultimately, I do think it'll be interesting to watch what the legislation comes out to be or how operators handle this deal again on this long-lived assets where ships are putting out today are going to be there for a while. And then will they have an incentive to scrap those early or at, you know, will there be incentives to retrofit certain systems or throw capture systems on certain systems? Um, I think that's a huge question. I think one thing that is interesting that folks could potentially borrow from is I've heard this in aviation where certain airports will mandate that the vessels or fleet that come into that particular airport have to be a certain standard. And that was a way that they forced plane operators to actually upgrade their systems or upgrade the fleets to do so. I'm imagining you could do something similar at ports where it's, hey, like XYZ ship, if you're not past this certain standard, you can't dock here. Um, so that could be an interesting way that you can use the regulatory arm to help incentivize some of this. But um, I still think it's, yeah, it's it's early days, it appears, and we'll see what happens. The only other thing I would point out too, is that it does seem like LNG, at least in like recent years, has been pushed as a, as a potential option. Um, obviously, that's still a fossil-based gas, so you still have the emissions associated with it or you need to capture it. But on a relative basis, it is giving you some efficiency benefits. So you know, I think a variety of approaches will be interesting to see. And I, I think you're going to see a, a host of people t- try different things as well. Yeah, we started to do a quick hit across actually some of those four um, alternative fuels that you mentioned in terms of positives and then possible issues for adoptions, you know, and more broadly. So when I think about ammonia, you know, you, you mentioned that you think a lot of the technologies and kind of stakeholders are going to be coalescing around ammonia and methanol. Ammonia on the positive side, it's high volumetric energy density, especially compared to other alternatives like hydrogen. The storage conditions are pretty easy. And also ammonia isn't new to shipping. Like it's currently being transported as cargo, so it doesn't require a whole new system. And there are some startups that have raised uh, money. There's a startup called Amogee that uses um, ammonia as a renewable fuel. They raised a little under $50 million over the summer. But one of the big issues with ammonia, at least that, that we found, again, we're early days in terms of diving deeper into this, is that a lot of the current ships aren't equipped to be able to use ammonia as a fuel. I mean, it already exists in in smaller scale, but that's going to include kind of redesigns of ships. And also, it could be more important for deep sea cargo ships rather than short sea ships. I think also we talked about the leaks a million times. I think another area that some people have highlighted about being an issue with ammonia outside of the leaks, outside of the infrastructure changes is actually potential competition across different industries. So ammonia is widely used in the Haber-Bosch process, which, you know, as you mentioned, is focused and is is necessary for fertilizer. And so if there are lots of different industries that are competing for ammonia, what does that say about the availability of supply? I know that Maersk is looking to combat this with a really large green ammonia uh, production plant that is being constructed in Europe. But you know, those are some of the the key questions when people say, oh, ammonia, ammonia, which, you know, we believe also has a lot of promise. We want to take into account a lot of the, the different consideration, even ones that kind of writ large would be positive for the climate. OK, let's try and, you know, decarbonize fertilizer, which is important. But what does that look like from a supply perspective? And can we do that with multiple industries at the same time? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question, isn't it? And it's one which, as this discussion has just showed, 
absolutely does not have any easy answers, as you say, there's kind of pros and cons with all of these things, and it's not obvious what the right way forward is going to be. We've actually got colleagues of mine at Wood McKenzie are working on a big piece on green ammonia, future green ammonia, where that industry is going to go. Uh, that's going to be published, I think, uh, in about three weeks' time. So watch this space for that, because that could be interesting. Hopefully it may answer some of these questions. But, yeah, it is, um, it is clearly a knotty problem. And... Again, it goes to my point, I always think about um, a lot of these kind of technologies, which is we've got to try a lot of different things because ultimately experience and testing things and actually seeing if you can make things work both in engineering terms and financially and in terms of public acceptance, that's the only way you're really going to make progress. And so as we stand here at the moment, it's worth trying ammonia, it's worth trying methanol, it's worth trying biofuels, whatever else you may want, hydrogen, all of these different routes, because as we stand today, we're not going to be able to predict which one of those is going to be successful. We have to learn by doing, find out what the challenges are and find out how they can be overcome. That's the only way we're ultimately going to make it work. Such a, such a good and underappreciated point there. Um, I would definitely emphasize that. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks. Um, so look, that seems like an excellent note to end on then with me having made a good point. <laughs> Just before we go, though, we do have to uh, have our free electrons, of course, personal things that we've brought in. I have one I am quite pleased with, but uh, let me hear yours first before we uh, get to that. Uh, Amy, what's yours? Okay, so my free electron is focused on gender smart investing. I've been finding it really fascinating, a lot of the intersections that have come up between um, gender investing and climate. And there's an organization called Gender Smart. They are a global field building initiative, all focused on unlocking the deployment of strategic, impactful, gender smart capital at scale. So they've written a number of reports on gender smart investing and climate, which I think could be helpful for the cop folks to to wade through. And they've also come up with the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Toolkit to help allocators and investment influencers incorporate a gender lens alongside a racial and ethnic justice lens across the investment process. So when I think about what that could look like in Azola and then zooming out to the cop conversation we've had around climate justice on a more global scale, I'm really excited to dig in further to this. Thanks. And and so when you say gender smart, give us an example then of what might gender smart look like. So a gender smart investing would be, you know, intentionally having an investment strategy that prioritizes companies um, or technology solutions where the beneficiaries are women and girls. I mean, so, you know, if you think about areas in terms of, you know, agriculture, other areas in developing country, it would be using that as a screening criteria alongside your other investment criteria to say, hey, you know, does this impact women and girls disproportionately knowing, you know, that there's been a lot of research focused on, you know, when you uplift women and girls, it can uplift other parts of the economy and also that, you know, they are a marginalized group and can disproportionately deal with a lot of the impacts of the climate crisis. I got it. Thanks very much. Yeah, that does sound very interesting. Yeah. So Shanu, what's yours? 
Yeah, I think My Free Electron is is a book I've been reading recently that I want to plug. Is the, the end of the world is just the beginning, mapping the collapse of globalization uh, by Peter Zihan. Peter Zihan's a famous geopolitical strategist, um, and this book is all about how to navigate this this next wave of of global geopolitical strategy. Given that most folks are going increasingly nationalistic um, and moving away from a globalized market, which at least for the entirety of my life has been a you know, emphasis on globalization. So it has all these different statistics on demographics, on infrastructure, on energy and food trade, on how, you know, how important it is to have a Navy that can protect your shipping lanes. Uh, speaking of shipping, um, and it's all things that I don't typically think about in my day-to-day life that has, you know, pretty profound implications on our cost of living and and the way that we'll go in the future. And so it's one man's opinion, obviously, um, but it's, it's, it's really interesting to at least open up my perspectives on how the world may shift around us and may dramatically look a lot different in the next 10, 20, 30 years than it has the last 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, that is very interesting. So I also recently read that book. In fact, I was, uh, I was speaking at a conference where Peter Zihan was also speaking. And so I thought that, you know, I should kind of know what his, his, uh, where he was coming from and what his ideas were. And so I read that book. And yeah, like you, I, I really liked it. I actually enjoyed it much more than I thought I would because I thought it was going to be one of these sort of you know, it has a slightly kind of a pitch, like the kind of book you'd find at an airport, you know what I mean? Which is sort of, totally. you know, the, this this one kind of crazy thing explains why the world is either doomed or saved. And, you know, this is kind of to make you um, kind of feel smart while you're sitting in the business class lounge. And it's actually uh, much better than that. And it is genuinely interesting and thought provoking. It's got a lot of good facts in it. I felt like I didn't agree with half of it. I absolutely didn't buy everything he said, but actually a lot of it is is very interesting. I agree. And certainly provocative. And even when I didn't agree with it, it was good to have my ideas challenged and to have sort of some intelligent, well-based points of view challenging the things I thought I knew. Amy, you should have a look. We'd be interested to see what you think. Yeah, I feel out of the out of the club, the cool kids club, because I have not read this book. So I was furiously yeah. writing down the name. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll send you the link. As I say, I, you know, I, I suspect you will also find a lot you would disagree with in it. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Definitely, definitely worth a look. And on the subject of uh, disagreement, so my uh, free electron is its thoughts on Elon Musk and Twitter. Elon Musk now owning Twitter, causing chaos already on the platform. I just um, don't particularly want to get into um, what's going to happen. It seems very unclear what's going to happen. But I just wanted to make the point that I do think Twitter is a very useful and valuable platform. I'm on it. The Energy Gang as a podcast is on it. A lot of great people who know a lot about energy and climate are on it. It is a great way to make connections. In fact, it's how I know Shanu. It's in fact, <laughs> I yep. first spotted you, right? You Because I noticed that you were you had a lot of good tweets and I thought, oh, this guy seems very... And then I checked out your blog and got in touch and that's how we know each other. And that's how you're on this show. So it has totally real value, Twitter, in the real world. Um, and I met a lot of other very interesting people that way. So it's clearly not been very successful as a business, despite its great success as a kind of cultural institution. And so you could argue that something needed to change. And maybe Elon Musk will be the right kind of change. Maybe it won't. I don't know. As I say, it's all a bit unpredictable at the moment. But I think it would be good if Twitter could be preserved as the kind of platform that it has been, or maybe even a better one, because it definitely does form some useful functions. And I think if it just became the kind of place that is very 
kind of hostile and unpleasant and unwelcoming that some people fear it will become under Elon Musk's ownership. I think that'd be a real shame. Do you have a personal belief if, if it'll actually end up being better or worse? And I guess the timeline you'll give it before you make that assessment? I mean, I feel like it would seem very ill-judged to pay $44 billion for a platform and then wreck it. So that gives me grounds for hope. I feel that the signals that Elon Musk has sent so far have been firing off in all kinds of different directions. Some things he's said and done have been pretty alarming and some have seemed very sensible. So I find it very, very hard to predict which way it's going to go. To your point, Shano, about the timeline, let's let's give it a year. I've heard people already kind of saying they're going to be fleeing to other platforms and people talking about Mastodon or whatever, which seems like a quite an inadequate replacement. I think there's definitely a, a market opportunity there. I saw someone making the suggestion that that would be a smart thing for Mark Zuckerberg to do at Facebook if they basically just launched a Twitter clone and say, this is this will be the kind of the good Twitter, this is like Twitter used to be, then everyone would go to that. And I certainly think there's an opportunity there for somebody to create something. But I'm personally not giving up on it just yet. I think, let's wait and see. I'm with you. I, I think it's an incredible resource. So I, I plan on saying, hope that it, it goes well. But like you said, like it's just such an incredible exchange of ideas and cool people and, and folks just sharing stuff um, out of process of learning. So it's hard to replicate that elsewhere, but uh, we'll see. And I'm not on Twitter too much. So now I feel like I need to get on it. But now this conversation makes me reevaluate. I, I am on it, but I'm, I need to be more active. This is our push to get you on more. I'm going to start tweeting you after this. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's right. So anyway, that is all we've got time for, unfortunately. Um, we do have to leave it there. But thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Thanks very much, Shani. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, Amy. Thank you both. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you very much, Amy. Um, I hope we can have you both back on again soon. Uh, thanks very much to our producers, Shakira Perez and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And many thanks above all to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. We are for now still on Twitter at, at the Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.